0: Oscar, how do I look back there from from back there? Good? The light's in a good place? Amen. Good. Thank you so much. How's everybody doing this morning? It is wonderful to be here. It is truly living the dream to be pouring into Bible college students such as yourselves. Today, I'm going to preach on the gospel and the Christian worldview. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. And while you turn there, I want to just ask, how was your Mardi Gras experience? It's good, right? You guys had fun? Was it exciting, thrilling, life-changing? Amen. This message is intended to ground your experience in truth. Amen? Because the Christian life is one of truth and experience. It is truth that can be experienced. Amen? And so as with all things in life, there must be balance. You must have truth and experience, not one or the other. If you have only truth, you may be a very moral person. You may be a very disciplined person. Uh, but you may, you'll won't be saved. If you have only experience, then you... You're going to be like so many Christians nowadays who really their, their Christian walk is totally based on and guided by their emotions. And I really want to hone in on that. I would appreciate you guys doing whatever you can to share this with the wider student body. I know there's the SUM students page. I think a lot of folks need to hear this. I've been involved with SUM for a number of years as a student, as faculty, as cohort advisor. I've been to Mardi Gras, and I've seen so many students who deep down worry me as the future pastors of of this country and future missionaries to countries around the world. They worry me because they lack conviction. They lack passion. They lack urgency when they're out on the streets, and they're told, this is... This is where we're going to preach the gospel to the lost. This is where we storm the gates of hell. And it's like pulling teeth to get them to want to do anything. And then when they do, their message is so superficial and convoluted. I feel this is a prophetic word. It's been burning in me the past few days. Some of you students don't know what you believe. And those who do, some don't know why they believe it. And some of you even don't know if you believe. Some of you don't know what you believe. You cannot articulate the gospel, yet you claim to have been saved. If you have been saved, can't you tell other people how to be saved? Do you have a point of reference in your own life that you can explain to others? How is it so many Christians, Bible college students don't know how to articulate the gospel of salvation if they claim to have received it themselves. And so what you often hear, they don't know what they actually believe. They simply repeat what they have heard others say. And it's often a very emotional, sentimental, sappy message that appeals to the self-esteem of a person. Broken little girls preaching a message of brokenness. Jesus loves you. You're worth it. Some of you last year, I I preached before the haircut, after the haircut meme. That was was going in on folks. I'm like Paul Washer. Y'all clapping. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. With your weak sauce gospel that is no gospel at all. Morality will not save you. Mindfulness will not save you. Self-esteem and self-help will not save you. Only the gospel will save you. And so we need to know what we believe for ourselves, not simply what we heard other people say by and by, what we heard our youth pastor say, what we heard our favorite YouTube pastor say, In their message, we need to get in this word and know what we believe for ourselves. Secondly, we need to know why it is we believe it. Pastor Nancy gave a wonderful presentation of her capstone paper down there in Mardi Gras. I think most of you saw it. And it was was amazing. And I know the work, the rigor that goes into that research and how narrowly focused it has to be. So I asked her, because, you know, for her, like the marks of a Christian worldview are where do you stand on abortion and homosexuality? Basically, that's what it would come down to because it really is a dividing line in our culture, is it not? There is a line in the stand. It's very us versus them. It's very heated. There's no, it, there's no room for in between, right? And so I get it. But I asked her, I said, what about the deeper issues? What about the why? I can know a Bible verse, That says homosexuality is a sin. Leviticus 18.22, it is an abomination for a man to lie with another man as one does with a woman. Right? I can show you all the places where it's mentioned in scripture and not in a very positive light at all. I can do that. And then kids can, you know, growing up in church, they can hear that. And they can agree with that. But when push comes to shove, when their brother or their cousin comes out as gay, or when they're just hit like, like a ton of bricks with the arguments of this world, they may go to that third place. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. And isn't that the refrain of so many apostates? So many public Christian figures, so many ministers that now say, I don't know if I believe in a God who would send people to hell. I don't know if I believe in a God who wouldn't let people be who they want to be and love who they want to love. Isn't that what they say? Some of you students, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it soon, you won't know if you believe it. We need to know these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the, what's that word? Nourished on the what? On the truths of the faith and on the good teaching you have followed. So he starts off here. This is Paul to Timothy, right? You guys know this letter. Joe taught on it. Was it last year or the year before? I know he taught it in this a whole series on chapel went through the whole thing. Um, but this is Paul to Timothy. This is a pastoral epistle. This is a young man in the ministry. And this advice that is given to him 2,000 years ago is very much applicable to you and I today. He starts off, if you point out these things, what are these things? Think about it for a moment. Don't, don't wait for me to feed it to you. What are these things? What are these things? Well, these things in verse 6 are mentioned in verses 1 through 5. Context, people. You know how to read your Bible? You don't just cherry-pick verses, do you? You don't just take Jeremiah 29:11 and you don't know anything about the Babylonian captivity and you make it about your girlfriend leaving you, do you? You don't take a Philippians 4:13, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me and make it about finding a parking spot, do you? Okay, that's part of knowing what you believe, by the way. Knowing this word and knowing how to work it. Someone say, "Work work it. If you point out these things, what are these things? Well, in verses 1 to 5, he warns, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And what he goes on to describe is actually some of the stuff taught by Roman Catholics. They forbid people to marry. They call people to abstain from certain foods, right? Just like the Catholics, they forbid priests to marry. They, uh, we are now in Lent. We arbitrarily and religiously say we can't eat meat we can smoke cigarettes and cohabitate with our partner, but we can't eat meat because we got to be religious. And he says this stuff comes from hypocritical liars whose conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, their conscience is numb. That's numb to the truth, and so they can perpetrate lies and feel nothing and feel great about it. He says the origin of these de- teachings is from demons. Now, is it a prophecy about the Roman Catholic Church specifically? Maybe, maybe not. We know it came along much later in history. However, if the shoe fits, wear it. But I want to make a bigger point. First of all, it says if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, in other words, as a pastor, if you point out to the congregation that, hey, the Roman Catholic Church teaches these things, these things are wrong, they're of of demons. And yet some Evangelical brothers and sisters are refusing to make a distinction between Protestant and Catholic. Y'all ever heard of the Reformation? There are real differences. There are two different Gospels. Paul said if you preach the wrong Gospel, you will be eternally damned. It's important. Again, but this this is just a bigger point here because we could apply this to so many things. If you point out these things, if you're faithful, if you are willing to have these conversations and make these bold proclamations, these divisive statements from the pulpit and in public, because he says later on, devote yourself to public preaching, you are a good minister of Christ Jesus. Nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed. Verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Here is a uh, a saying that deserves full acceptance. Verse 10, that is why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Just a quick word on that. This is only the introduction. We're not in the message yet. But just a quick word on this. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Be woke as to what it is you actually believe. Think about what you believe. Don't just emote. Don't just be carried along by emotions and momentum and external motivators like all these other people are excited, so you're excited. That can carry you for a long, 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 long time, but it can't carry you to heaven. We hear all the time of church kids who become college kids, who become backslidden adults. Right. Because they have a superficial faith. Uh, You know, they have the Noah's Ark coloring book, but they haven't learned about the judgment of God that brought about the flood. And so as they grow up, as these things are challenged, as the, the creation is challenged, as the Christians' controversial views on human sexual ethics are challenged, as the exclusivity of Christ is challenged, as they are tempted, as the world presents all of these things that seem so enticing to them, you will see church kids who become college kids who become backslidden adults. You hear of it again and again and again, hence the need to disciple our children, so on and so forth. But I want to say that the same thing can happen to Bible college kids who become pastors, who become apostles. States, watch your life and your doctrine closely, because it, it persevere. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, I am so gravely concerned for some students. I know of alumni who are constantly in my prayers. Some have backslidden. Some are just in the world and deceived. I was looking at a man. An alumni, graduate, way back when. And on his arm is a woman who's not the wife of his youth. And he still fakes like he's a man of God and fakes, talks the talk that he, that he used to talk back then. You see people who are maybe not there, but they're going to get there. Because they're, they're, they're saying stuff like, socialism's a good idea, we just haven't done it right yet they're saying worldly nonsense as if god has nothing to say about economics and justice so they you know in the in the vacuum of god's word which they don't know and they don't understand they have the world's narrative and they say stuff like this and i'm so gravely concerned for their for them and for their hearers i'm concerned for you and for your hearers that you will be saved that you will persevere that you will not melt Under the pressure of this world. Do you understand there is surmounting pressure against Christians, against ministers? You've already felt it. You already see it. Christianity has not been outlawed yet, but it can be very soon. Don't think we're going to get away. We've been the exception to the rule with regard to global Christianity. We have had a protected status because of our, of, our, of our Bill of Rights, the First and Second Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and all these things. But that is the exception to the rule. Right now in Nigeria, Christians are being massacred, and their government ha- just has no ability at all to bring about any order or protect them. In other places, it is the government that is perpetrating these horrible acts uh, the Chinese persecuting, and imprisoning Christians, demanding their dictator be worshipped as God. A literal antichrist in that, in that regard. So it's the exception to the rule. And Jesus talks about the, the seeds, right? The parable of the sower. And there's that seed that springs up for a while. Two to three years in Bible college while you're in incubation, while you're in a bubble of excitement and energy drinks carrying you along and emotional music that makes you cry and makes you feel things. And then what does he say, though? What causes it to wither? He says, well, he says it's like the sun beating down on it, but what does the sun represent? Persecution for the word. And they fall away. Persevere. Watch your life and doctrine closely so that you will save both yourself and your hearers. That was just the introduction. What I want to do right now is talk about the gospel and how it relates to the Christian worldview. And here's the big idea. To me, it is very difficult to summarize the gospel in one or two sentences because the gospel is the Christian worldview. Everything in this world, every matter of life, everything in the newspaper, it's going to come back to the fact that God made the world. God rules the world. Man sinned against God. God will judge the world, yet God loves the world. So God sent his son into the world to save the world before he comes back to set the world on fire. Everything comes back to that, folks. Everything, how you raise your family has everything to do with that. How are the the 2020 elections has everything to do with that. Do you understand? There is not one thing that this Bible doesn't talk about that's meaningful for our lives. Now, we know it doesn't tell us how to build an engine. We know it doesn't, you know, it's not exhaustive in the knowledge. But what it tells us is is it accurately describes what the world is like. This is truth. Truth will always... um, play out in reality. It will always match our experience. It accurately describes what the world is like. It accurately describes the human condition and tells us who we are as people made in the image of God, yet fallen sinners. And then it accurately tells us who God is and how we may have peace with him. And everything else flows from that. Everything else flows from that. So in my presentation of the gospel, I like to use what are called the four spiritual laws. If you haven't heard of this, you uh, you should be very uh, you sh- you should be aware of it by now, because Bill Bright, the late great Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, came up with this as a method for evangelism back in the '60s. So college students who really don't know how to share their faith—these aren't even Bible college students—they're there for their you know, their marketing degrees and what have you, but they want to share their faith. And so here's a simple way, four spiritual laws, right? Why I like to use this is to take each concept and show you just how deep it goes. Because I can teach you a method, I could teach you four simple steps, but the steps are never that simple. Well, I'll say this, they're simple, but they're not easy. And salvation, is it ever four simple steps? Was it four simple steps with you? Was it somebody sitting down with you over a cup of coffee and explaining a few things to you? And you're like, oh yeah, I agree with that. And now you're a Christian? It was never never like that. Again, how will you save yourself and your hearers? What you win them with is what you win them to. And so... Having taught theology and practice of evangelism, I was astounded at how many Christians had such a shallow understanding of these things. Such a surface level. So let's get deep. It's four spiritual laws, right? The first is this. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have heard that kind of message preached? And I'm, to me, there's nothing wrong with it. That sentiment by itself is fine, but there's so much more to it. There's so much more understanding behind it. Now, I am tempted to go uber deep with you to talk about the Trinity, the attributes of God, Christology, theories of the atonement, but I'm not going to go that angle. That is the job of your professors. They spend weeks laboring to help you understand those things. So I'm going to go at it from a slightly different angle. This already presupposes that we serve an almighty triune God who is revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? They are co-equal. They're co-eternal. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct from one another, yet they share the same essence. They have different roles in terms of salvation, the plan of redemption, and yet they are the same God. Do you see that? That's already presupposed, and then you learn that more in depth from your professors. But here's something that really, I think, is foundational to a Christian worldview. Three things. Number one, God created the world. God created the world. You guys got to write this stuff down. You're in class. God created the world, which implies the second thing. We are his creatures. We are God's creatures living in God's world. If that is the case, who makes the, wor- who makes the rules of how things work? The creature or the creator? The creator. We are God's creatures living in God's world. And when we don't think- do things God's way, it's going to go bad for us. God's commands, His laws are for our flourishing. They are for life and blessedness. This again goes to the why of what we believe. See, homosexuality isn't a sin just because God thinks it's icky or because it reflects some ancient prejudice, but because it goes against God's order for the family, which is a reflection of God's character and His nature within the Trinity. And when we defy it in any way, whether it's sex outside of marriage, plurality of partners, whether we hate our bodies and want to be something other than what God makes us to be, when we defy that, it is to our detriment. So at the same time, we are so sexually liberated, we've never been more enslaved. We're God's creatures living in God's world. So that's the first two things we need to know about God. Number one, He is the Creator. Number two, we are His creatures. As the Creator, He is the moral lawgiver. His laws are a reflection of who He is. So they're not arbitrary, it's not just. God's ideas, and he's imposed his ideas and his preferences. This is who he is. You shall not lie because God is the truth, and God cannot lie. You shall be not commit adultery because God is faithful. You know, and we could go on the list. You shall not murder because God is the giver of life. The third thing is that God has clearly and decisively revealed himself to us. There's a book I think every Bible college student should read by the late Francis Schaeffer. It is called, He is There and He is Not Silent. Wherever people think God is silent, they want to fill in the gaps with their ideas. What did the devil say to Eve? Did God really say to call into doubt whether God has spoken? God has spoken. There is no question about who God is and what God wants for us. He gave us a book. Wow. He gave us a book. Again, the temptation will be to, you know, talk about the manuscript evidence for this and all that. Because that, what's the first thing people say? Well, it was written by man. <laughs> so was your atheist book. Whoa. Well, but we're not, that, that's your professor's job. That's your professor's job. They'll tell you about the inspiration and in all of that. But we will look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. He has spoken in Scripture and in His Son. Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, From now on, if anyone has seen Me, they have seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us how in past times and in many ways God has spoken through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, who is His, who is his image and the exact representation of His being. I'm paraphrasing that. You should read it. Hebrews 1. It's powerful. For now we're in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. He's revealed Himself in His Son and in Scripture. And Paul says of Scripture... Verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, he says all Scripture. All Christians will say they believe in all Scripture, but in practice, they don't apply all Scripture. They don't teach all scripture. They don't study all scripture. They don't believe all scripture. Again, this will be that point where people say, I don't know if I believe that. Because they will be confronted with, uh, uh, what's it, Numbers chapter 31. God tells Moses, have Israel kill all the Midianites. Men, women, children, but save the girls who have not yet been with a man. You'll read that and say, well, I don't know if I believe in a God like that. There should be no trouble texts for you. There should be nothing that you are not willing to preach to the people of God on a Sunday morning. There should be no Bible verse that you are ashamed of. And yet Christians will say, I'm not ashamed of any of this. Then why don't you talk about it? Why don't you talk about it? There are Christians who, well, why don't they talk about it? They're not familiar with it. They haven't read it. They haven't been forced to read it. They haven't been forced to grapple with it. And then the first time someone brings it to their attention, it's not their pastor, but it's some internet atheist. And so instead of the pastor telling you what the verse means, it's the atheist telling you what the verse means. God have mercy on us. Watch your life and doctrine closely so that you'll save both yourself and your Hearers. hearers. Your hearers. If they don't hear you talk about all scripture, somebody else is going to come and fill in the void of what you refuse to talk about. And it is God-breathed. The Greek word is theanustas. And the the, the language kind of subtly talks about like when you speak, you're expelling breath. God-breathed or breathed out by God. Scripture is the very speech of God. We know that God has not made uh, the writers of the Bible into his secretaries where they fall into a trance and they just kind of write things. You know in demonic, new age, occultic circles, people do that. It's called automatic writing. They fall into trances under demons and then they write down the stuff the demons tell them to write. God has never operated like that. God has operated very relationally with His people and very fluidly with His people through their experience, through their even through their, their language, through their level of intellect, uh, all of these things. But He carried them along. The Bible says elsewhere that His Spirit carried them along to say exactly what He wants them to say and the, what, exactly what He wants us to know. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this is super important because when I'm talking about truth, it's... It's, I'm, I'm basically using that word as synonymous with the Bible. Okay, truth, Bible. To me, it's the same thing. Potato, potato. Now we could, you know, get into the nuances of it. I probably because like we say, God is love, but love is not God. So obviously, you know, you, we got to be careful how we do things. You know, some people, some Christians will even say that we're we're guilty of bibliolatry. We are, we are idolaters of the Bible because we have such a high view of Scripture. My friend, without the Bible, you don't have Christianity. Okay? Give me a coherent view of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and why we should believe him, and don't give me the Bible. Okay? I know we have wonderful sources of, uh, of antiquity outside the Bible, Josephus, Tacitus, and all these people, Um, who recorded that Jesus of Nazareth lived. They talk about John the Baptist, his brother James. They talk about the early church. But you piece that all together, you don't really have a mess. You don't have anything coherent. This is the primary source for everything we know about Christianity, folks. And it is God-breathed. It is God's heart. How much do you want to know God's heart? How much do you want to know God's heart? If you want to know God's heart, every verse is like a facet of a diamond, another side of God's heart, another side of God's personality and character. You get to know him better, verse by verse, scripture by scripture. It's all God-breathed, and it is useful. It is useful. As I have said, the Christianity is truth you can experience. Two plus two equals four, that's truth. And then you experience it when you go to the grocery store, you pick up two oranges, you pick up two pineapples, and you have four pieces of fruit, right? And so you see how it works out in the real world. You will always, if you pick up two pieces of fruit and another two pieces of fruit, you'll always have four pieces. If you pick up two pieces and you pick up three pieces, you're not going to get four, right? And so truth will always match reality. It will, it will be something that is useful, that works in the real world, just like mathematics, Okay? And there are folks, when they believe a lie and they're committed to holding on to that lie, they have to do mental gymnastics to explain how the lie explains the world they live in. But we're going to find that this word works. This word works for your family. This word works for your finances. This word works for government. Now, I don't want to get too political as if to, you know, take a position. There are many... Uh, Christian ideas about government and things like that and, and God's law. But did you know God gave Israel a criminal justice system? Did you know that? He did. It's called the Torah, the law. And yet we want to act like God has nothing to say. God has something to say about everything that matters. Right? And so when we talk about public issues and all that stuff... The Bible applies. And if we're not applying what the Bible says to it, then we're applying what Bernie Sanders and everyone else says to it. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and uh, and training in righteousness. And and so this goes to us. It teaches us, corrects us, rebukes us, and, and builds us up to equip us for every good work. Correct? has that effect for us. You, you have uh, various means which God has given you to, to help you along in the Christian life. Jesus has given us the church, a body of believers, so we're not alone in this. We have each other. We have fellowship. We have accountability. Amen? That's wonderful. God has given us his spirit. Amen? And so his spirit strengthens us. He gives us spiritual gifts. He brings us the fruit of the spirit. Right, Lawrence? He brings the sweet presence of Jesus, the Father and the Son, into our lives. Isn't that right, Sadia? He does that. And so I don't want to minimize the other means that God has provided to strengthen us in the Christian life. But why do we look outside the Bible? Whether for our own Christian life, or for the Christian life of the people to whom we minister. There are so many pastors that are literally preaching pop psychology from their pulpits. They said, This is tried and found wanting. We found somebody who said it better, someone who did it better, someone who's more popular, someone who's more palatable. And so we're going to say what they have to say. We're going to throw some, some Bible verses in there to make it uh, to, to help. But, but really, that's not enough. The Bible is fully accurate. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, he, he warns them. He says that men will come up from within your own ranks and they're going to tear you apart. In other words, people within the church would become apostate and would become false teachers and would ravage the people of God, would ravage God's precious children. And that, what does he do? He, he commits them to the word. He says, hold on to the word of God. Hold on to the scriptures. God hasn't changed his mind, folks. This stands firm. This is trustworthy and true. Everything God has promised, he will deliver. Everything that this word prophesies and predicts will come to pass. Do you understand? And so when we talk about God, going back to these four spiritual laws, we know that God is the creator. That's huge. Because that makes him the designer, that makes him the lawgiver, that makes him the judge. That makes him the creator of the world that we ourselves live in. He makes him the creator of us, we his creatures, the second point. The third, he has spoken clearly and decisively. Where so many of the mainline churches that have apostatized like the United Church of Christ, like the United Methodists, like the evangelical Lutherans that are now ordaining homosexuals. They're basically to the left on every major issue. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way anymore. Why? Because they took a very low view of Scripture. This may or may not be God's word. God may or may not have spoken. Just take what you like as chicken soup for the soul. And of course it leads to this. Because why, why even pretend at that point? As I said before, you don't have Christianity without this. Why even pretend you're a Christian if you don't believe God spoke? Why give your life in service to the gospel to see lost people if you don't believe this is absolutely God's word? If this is anything less than God's word, then let's just go out and be party animals and just live, live our own lives and build our own kingdoms. Again, many Christians will say they believe this, but in practice, They show otherwise. So that's the first thing. So when we say God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for you, you're like, yes, yes, absolutely. But there's so much more to it than that. Is is God just Barney the dinosaur? And as a matter of fact, that statement in itself is not always appropriate. I go to the abortion clinic where women and, and men, fathers and mothers, they're not weeping, they're laughing, and they're brazen. About their decision to have their child assassinated for their convenience. They're brazen. God loves you so much, you're worth it. That is the last thing you should say to that person. How many times have we talked to some reveler? God loves you, God loves you. Yeah, I know. Woo! Ridiculous. We could talk about the love of God but God is so much more. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. The Bible says righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. And even though the Bible says God loves the world, John 3, 16, it says in the Psalms that he hates the wicked. What do you do with that? I'm going to leave you with that. Put your, crit- your critical uh, thinking cap on, which, which I know you millennials love to do or you Gen Z, whatever you are. You love to critically think, right, Lawrence? That's our generation. We're the critical thinking generation. We're, we, we don't, we're not about emoting. We're about facts and logic. Right, Lawrence? We're about analyzing pros and cons, data analysis, right? Exegesis. Help us, Lord. Second thing. The second law. Man has sinned and is therefore unable to experience God's love and plan for his life. Man has sinned and is therefore unable to experience God's love and plan for his life. Look at Romans chapter 3. I'm as fired up today as a lot of students were last week. you got to keep that fire. Yeah. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We know this well-known verse here. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this verse is often wrongly interpreted to mean that falling short of the glory of God is that the glory of God is this perfect standard. Okay? And that 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 much is true. God has a perfect standard for us to attain his glory. And it is true that everyone has fallen short of it. But where we go wrong is we we seem to imply that people are just trying hard. They're trying their best. But God's glory is just too hard of a, it's just too high of a standard. No one can reach it. God demands perfection, but how can we expect to be perfect? It seems to imply that we're all just well-meaning people, and and God is condemning us for all our our little fibs and and all the little things we do, right? And that could not be more further from the truth. It is not man falling short of the glory because he's trying so hard, but it's like God saying, hey, jump, jump 50 feet in the air or you're going to hell. Right, Like God has put this impossible standard before us and none of us meet it even though we try our best and we're all trying in our own ways through our own religions. The falling short of God's glory is the rejection of God's glory. And I'm going to prove Paul with Paul. Look at Romans uh, chapter 1. It's going to say 118, but I'm going to move down a little bit here. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God... They neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Man falling short of the glory of God is not us trying just so hard and falling short of a perfect standard. It is us rejecting His glory. It is us refusing to glorify Him, but instead exchanging His glory for the petty things of this world, for girls and boys and body parts and money and bling. Exchanging it for something far less. And I need to speak because it is just so epidemic, the beautifully broken nonsense. Now we now now in this, I know in this room we've addressed it in the Christian circle, and we need to stay stop saying as Christians how beautifully broken we are. But it still comes across in our evangelism how girls preach to other girls their self-esteem, how worship songs are about self-esteem and all this nonsense. Oh, I'm worth it. I'm so beautiful and all that. And and there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. But let me tell you about all the single moms, Lauren. You know about this. They exchange the glory of God for boys who can shave. For boys who can shave. You know what I'm saying? Grown men, a boy in a grown man's body who drives a car, It says he loves you. They exchanged the glory of God and the love of God and the value that God bestows on them for the idol of a man. And you have seen again, Lauren, the heartache of women who go back to those idols. Why are we having, joining their pity party? Woe is me, woe is me. Oh, you're right. Woe is you. No, you made a decision the first time with idol A, and then I told you about Jesus, and he loves you, and he should be your husband, and but you went back to idol B, now you have two baby daddies. Now you've had an abortion. Now, it, it, and so we need to get past this, folks. Yes, there's the emotional aspect, because sin destroys. It, it tears us apart. And yet men and their their wickedness love it and they go back to it. They love what hurts them. They love the idols that let them down and destroy them. This has to be addressed. And in loving the idol, they don't love God. This has to be addressed. The matter of the conscience must be addressed. I put up a post earlier about a man who raped and killed a woman. And he was let off on a technicality just earlier this year. And he was already trying to snatch a 17-year-old here in the city. And they let him off 24 hours later for that. And there's there's no perfect crime, folks. Everyone's going to meet Judge Jesus. The wages of sin is death. But when I think about that, in our culture, especially right here, right now, man, everybody is one or two steps away from being him. If you're looking at porn... You're one or two steps away from that guy. If you're having sex outside of marriage, you're one or two steps from that guy. You cannot say that we should have sex wherever, whenever, and with whomever we want and then lament at sexual exploitation and abuse. You can't have your cake and eat it too. We should have free sex. That's what the pedophile says. You're singing the song of every pervert, every pimp, and every abuser. How dare you? And people are walking around with secrets, folks. God will expose the secrets of men's hearts. Don't let people fool you. Don't let people manipulate you. I love when God gives you a prophetic word, a word of knowledge that lays bare the heart But let's get a prophetic word that lays bare the heart so as to rebuke, so as to expose. And stop playing street psychologist. Who hurts you? Tell me about your church hurt. Tell me about your dad hurt. You don't sound any different than Dr. Phil helping you get over yourself. Poor you. Who's, who's the guilty party? Who's the one responsible for the gap between us and God? It is us. We have sinned. We have fallen short of His glory, exchanged His glory, refused to know Him or glorify Him or give thanks to Him, to our own hurt, to our own hurt. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's the second thing. Of course, we could go much deeper into anthropology, homardiology, which is the study of sin, the image of God, the imago dei. We, there's, there's just so much more. That's the professor's job. It feels good to say that because I was that professor. We had three hours to fill. Like, come on, someone answer my open-ended questions. And it's like always the same two people. Well, come on, some, somebody can relate. All right, the third thing Jesus, the Son of God, is the only provision that is available to atone for man's sin so that he can know God's love and experience his plan for his life. So, in summary, the the third law is about Jesus who he is, what he did, what his message was. Once again, I don't have to explain the hypostatic union. This is assumed. God is fully, Jesus is fully God, fully man, right? I'm not going to get into that. But I want to get into the heart of Jesus. Amen? And I do want to talk about the atonement, though I don't want to get overly technical. Because so much of evangelism is basically talking about the atonement. If you think about it, that is a simple definition of evangelism telling people about the atonement and and how it applies to their lives. Again, there are many theories. Some of them, most of them, for that matter, are are inadequate in, in explaining the full depth of what Jesus did, but many of them contain helpful truths. Like, for example, there's Christus Victor you'll learn about that. Has anybody learned about that in their classes yet? Sadia has. Christ is Victor. He is, you know, brings victory over sin and over this evil age. Well, that's one facet of it. There's many. One that I think spells it out well is penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal is in reference to a penalty or a punishment. The word substitute, you guys know what that means. It's so, it's somebody in place of someone else, right? So penal substitutionary atonement is about Jesus dying in your place for your sins. And it is to satisfy who? God. Jesus didn't die to save you from the devil. In one respect, he did. But the devil, is, is he's not the one in charge. He's not your judge. Right? Yes, without Christ, you are under the devil's power. That much is true. But who ultimately, whose law are we breaking? Who is our judge? It is God, the Father. And so Jesus stands in our as our mediator, in our place, to take our punishment for our sins, to die the death we deserve, having lived the life we could never live. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, let's just look at that and we'll we'll find the verse we need. There's a lot I want to say about Jesus, but we cannot have a caricature of Jesus. Amen? There are many people in the world who claim they are on Jesus' side, right? There's a Facebook page, it's called God. It's just called God. It has millions of followers, and it's listed as a comedian. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's listed as a comedian. And the picture, the profile picture is like a South Park version of God is like an old white guy, right? I didn't know God was a flaming liberal. Help us, Lord. You know, But don't we do that with Jesus? We, we make Jesus in our image, just like all the cults and all the world religions, Islam, Baha'i, Mormons, they all try to take Jesus, put him on their team. And then when you talk to folks out in the world who are not particularly religious or, or at least overtly religious, but they're still going to claim Jesus. Jesus was about compassion. He was. He was. But not to the exclusion of righteousness. Jesus was a conservative Jew. Jesus had no concept of a spectrum of genders. Okay, let's just, just get that straight. So, so you do want to be balanced because you can take some parts of what Jesus says and you could go Westboro Baptist. Like you ain't saved and you will never be saved because you're, you know, you're not in our little group, right? Some people could just just be very extreme, right? And On one end of the spectrum, and then other folks will take, you know, just cherry-pick some verses on the other side and make Jesus out to be a hippie. Now, what is central to Jesus' message, we could talk about his morals, like the Sermon on the Mount. It's who he is, okay? Things that are important about Jesus, write this down. Who he is, what he taught And what he did. Who he is, what he taught, and what he did. Who is he? He is the son of God in the flesh. He's not one prophet among many. He's not just a good man, right? He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the savior of the world, right? Who he is. He needs to be the main character of the gospel story. So much of our evangelism has just become about sharing our story you even you hear so many prominent christians describe it in those terms so evangelism has been reduced to sitting down over a cup of coffee i share my story you share your story what about his story what about the gospel story we need jesus to be front and center of the story if we want to call it that he's the lead role the gospel is not a mere subplot to your story of self-fulfillment. It is the story. You're a part of his story. It's not the other way around. Amen? And so we, we need to understand that. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to make a beeline to the cross in our message, as Billy Graham used to say. And talk about Jesus, who he is, what he taught, and what he did. And again, what he taught, again, the, the morality, the ethics, all that stuff is wonderful, But what was at the core and what was foundational to what he taught is who he is. He was was crucified for who he is because of who he claimed to be. On the Jewish side, he claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. But the Jews did not have authority to execute someone, so they had to tell the Romans, he claims to be a king. He's competing with Caesar for lordship over this world. And so he's being crucified, not for anything he did. He was sinless, but for who he was. And that brings us to what he did. He was crucified, not as a martyr, not as a mere man, not as Martin Luther King, as a symbol for a cause or something like that, or some figure who inspires us today in a very you know, superficial sense. But he died in our place for our sins. The sins of the world were laid upon him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now verse 21 summarizes this doctrine, and many verses do this as well. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a great exchange Jesus bears all of our sin. He imputes to us all of his righteousness. He was treated as we deserve in order that we might be treated as he deserves. Again, so much of our evangelism is just trying to articulate this truth. How can you tell it to Tyrell on the west side? How can you tell it to Phoebe downtown? How can you tell it from the ghetto to the pento? How can you break down this timeless truth into plain language for all to hear? This does not change. This is what needs to be communicated. Everything else is just window dressing. you got to understand that. We need to talk about Jesus. He needs to be the center Of it, because the Bible says that he has been given the name above all names. That at every uh, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This whole world, the world belongs to Jesus, as the theologian Abraham Kuyper said. When he when he comes back to the world, he's going to look at all of it. He's going to say, "Mine, mine, 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 mine. It's all mine." Everyone has to answer the Jesus question. Everyone has to do something about Jesus Christ, as Vance Havner, the Baptist preacher, used to say. You need to look up these sermons, folks. Vance Havner, powerful. He's the Southern Leonard Ravenhill. Vance Havner, look him up. That's your neighbor. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. Everyone, you can't be passive about the Jesus question. If you don't want to ask the, ask, answer the Jesus question, it will be answered for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus now, you will be. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. We cannot understate the importance of Jesus Christ. The last thing, the last of the four spiritual laws, is that everyone must personally uh, appropriate salvation and by faith in Jesus in order to experience God's love and plan for his life. This can be summed up in conversion. How do we understand Christian conversion to take place? What happens when somebody becomes a Christian? And the language you use is very telling of what you actually believe about that. If you say, just accept Jesus in your heart or receive Jesus. I'm not against that necessarily. But it's, again, a lot of people, they say that because they're repeating what they've heard other people say. And they don't understand conversion themselves. I said at the outset, if you know how to be saved, if you have been saved, you should be able to explain it to other people how they may be saved. Right? We should understand what takes place at conversion. Look at John chapter 3. I know in this cohort, we know about being born again. Conversion is not just agreeing with a new set of ideas, it's not mere mental assent, it is not membership into a club. It is the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of the Lord Almighty. Coming to dwell within your spirit, to cleanse you of your sin and your idols, to write God's law upon your heart, to move you to keep his laws and decrees, to where once upon a time you were dead in your sins and transgressions, you were like the rest of the world, you followed the cravings of your flesh. Whatever addictions, whatever habits were formed in your flesh, that is what governed your life. Whatever seemed good to you, and you were under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient, you were, you were under the control of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You had no connection to God. You have a spirit, but it's dead. It's not dead in the sense of, unresponsive, like a corpse, but it's dead because it is separated from the giver of life that is the Lord. And so you have your spirit. Think of it as an antenna, but all it, the only signal it can pick up is devil FM. All devil, all the time. Devil radio. Because you... We're a slave of fleshly desires, and the devil would use those to manipulate you, to coerce you, to keep you in that cycle, and the world would agree with you and affirm you and teach you likewise, and that's all you had, no connection to God, no life in you. So what had to happen? Jesus teaches Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You must not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. See, we were born of the flesh to our father and mother, but what the flesh gives birth to is flesh. It, 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 it begets in its likeness, right? Just like apple seeds produce apple trees, produce apples. It's that, it's that law of nature. And sinful, fallen people in their flesh can produce fleshly, sinful, fallen human people. I was born, 1987, a sinner. I was the idolater. I was the one who rejected the glory of God for various things. That was in my nature. And even though they destroyed me, even though they left me so empty, I kept running back to them. I couldn't help myself. I had no other option, no other way out. That was my existence until 2007. I was reborn a saint. God changed me. We must preach the new birth. The great evangelist George Whitfield. When asked, why do you always preach that we must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. Wow. That was the, the, the call of, of so many of the awakenings of the 17th, 18th century. I mentioned Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and, and um, John Wesley and others. That was their call, new birth, a new life. God taking out the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. God turning the sinner into a saint. God turning the pervert into someone who is pure. God turning the hateful, bitter, spiteful person into the most merciful, loving, forgiving, compassionate person you've ever known. Can you believe God can do it? Do you believe God changes lives? Now, how is this appropriated? That's another thing. That conversion is what God does. He changes the heart. But there is something we do as well in response to the gospel. Look at uh, Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. I feel like Pastor Joe yesterday. I'm just aimlessly flipping through my Bible right now. It is is harder than it looks to to multitask. Okay. Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So when we talk about accepting the Lord, just receive him in your heart. I don't know, some of you just get all Southern on me when you start evangelizing. Just accept them in your heart. When did you start sounding like that? Repent and be baptized. That word repentance, it simply means to turn, to turn from your old life, to turn from your old ways. And another uh, understanding of that word repent, it comes from the Greek metanoia. Everyone say metanoia. It means to change your mind. You need to change your mind about God. You need to change your mind about who you are and what you th- in what in, in your place in this world. You need to change your mind about what you think is right and wrong. You need to change your mind about truth and how to find it. Do you understand? Your mind needs to change. You need to stop agreeing with the world and start agreeing with God, even if it means disagreeing with yourself and the way you've always lived your life. To confess. That Jesus is Lord. To confess your sins, it means to say the same thing as. So I would side with God against myself because I'm changing my mind. I understand that dude is a loser. Jared, the sinner, he was a loser. He was going nowhere but hell. I'm not justifying my sin. I'm not excusing my sin. I'm not not trying to minimize it whatsoever. I agree with God about who he said I was lost, condemned, perverse. But I also agree with him about who he said I can be. New, holy, righteous, redeemed. We must call people to repent, to understand that they are dead wrong. And to the extent that they disagree with God's word about anything, they are dead wrong and they need to come in alignment with this. And that requires the third thing. And I know we're right at the time, but... I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the F-bomb. Faith. <laughs> Quickly, Ephesians 2.8. Quick as quick as we can, so we could close this out. Talking about conversion. Isn't it important to know how do you lead someone to Christ? What should they expect? What's going to take place? What you win them with is what you win them to. Are you calling them into an emotional experience? Are you calling them to be around you and your friends so that they can feel better and feel a social acceptance? Or are you calling them to from death to life? Are you calling them to a relationship with God? Ephesians 2.8, we'll close with this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one could boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So to make this plain for you, and again, your professors will help you out. Thank God. But to make it plain... When we talk about that fourth spiritual law, it's conversion. What is conversion? It is God giving you new birth. His Holy Spirit coming to dwell in you and cleanse your spirit and make you new. How is it appropriated? When we have faith, when we believe in Jesus, and when we believe in Jesus, we will repent. If you don't believe in Jesus, you won't repent. you got to understand that. So we must preach it. Some people say, well, you can't make it necessary to salvation, but I see it in tandem. If I believe in who Jesus is, that he died for my sins on the cross, how can I live in that way any longer? How can I claim to be his follower and continue doing the things I know he's against? How can I do that? I must repent. If I believe, I will repent. If someone tells me that and I say I believe, but I give mental assent like so many in our country still claim to be Christian and I live the way I'm living, it, sh- it reflects that I really don't believe that in my heart. Do you see? So let's all stand and we'll have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you called us through your servant, Paul. To watch our life and our doctrine closely. To persevere in them. So that in doing so, we would save both ourselves and our hearers. So Lord, with these just in a place not not too different from where Timothy was at that point in his life. Young ministers, preachers of the word. With a calling very similar to his. Lord I pray for that. That everyone will persevere. They will watch their life. How they live. Their relationship with you. That they will not neglect their salvation. That they will not treat lightly. What you have given them. That they will have the fear of God. To keep your commandments. And not to trifle with sin. But I pray also, Lord, they watch their doctrine, that they plumb the depths of your word, because it is like plumbing the depths of your heart. That they will seek, Lord, not only to know what they believe, but why they believe, so that their faith may be even stronger, and that they may better communicate it to this lost and dying world. Lord, use us. Here we are. Use us, Lord. We acknowledge, Lord, that in our own strength and in our own right, Lord, we will fall and fail again and again and again. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can persevere. We can know you better. We can lead others to you. We can see this world changed. Here we are, Lord. Strengthen us and send us out in Jesus' name. And everyone said,